Chapter 10 of The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service by James R. Driscoll. Chapter 10 France at Last. From that moment, the watch on each vessel in the fleet was redoubled and there was constant speculation, especially among the soldiers, as to whether another submarine would be sighted, and if so, under what circumstances. They had now abandoned the zigzag course, and were taking a direct route around the north of Ireland towards the North Channel. On the following morning, two additional destroyers bore down upon them from opposite sides of the bow almost simultaneously, and as they came, both code-telegraphed their identity. With these extra convoys, it seemed indeed unlikely that a submarine would get near them, or if it did, would attempt to do other than make its own safe escape. Fairhead, at the northeast corner of Ireland, gave them their first sight of land since they had left the shores of America, and for many of them this first glimpse of Erin's Isle brought with it the sentimental thrill of seeing the country where their parents had been born and spent their youth, for there was many a lad of Irish ancestry aboard the Everett. Rounding Fairhead without mishap or contact with a submarine, the danger from that source was practically over. The convoy was reduced to a cruiser and destroyer, and thus they laid a southeasterly course to what your old-time sailor would describe as a piping breeze. They flanked the Isle of Man off its westward coast, and then sped directly across the Irish Sea and into the harbor of Liverpool. Their arrival was unannounced. It was only one of many, and a thing to which the people of that and other cities of England and France had become quite accustomed. Nevertheless, they welcomed the hosts of Uncle Sam in the warmest manner and in every possible way they showed the deep sense of appreciation and feeling of increased safety with which they viewed the arrival of more and more thousands of American troops in their land on their way to the trenches of France to help conquer the common enemy. But there was not much time to be spent in Liverpool. Indeed, they had scarcely become accustomed to feeling their feet on solid ground again before the order to march was given, and they left the riverfront to go to the railroad station. There they received a plain but substantial meal, were inspected and admired by their British cousins, and then boarded the long troop train that already awaited them. "'Take your seats, Yankees!' shouted the bearded conductor jovially, and the boys piled in. The details of that ride through England the boys from Brighton never will forget, although it was a long and tiring trip from Liverpool all the way to Dover on the channel which separates England from the mainland of Europe. They crossed fair fields and beautiful streams that reminded them of their own native land, and came within view of giant ancient forests. They passed through cities and towns, and again came out into open country. Occasionally there were stops, when the soldiers were allowed to leave the train to give their legs a stretch. At such times they were greeted affectionately on all sides by the men and women of England. "'Hi say, slim old top!' Jerry imitated good-naturedly as they boarded the train again, after one of these delays. "'Hi say, did you ear the handsome little Englisher out there say how healthy you looked?' did e asked slim grinning e did answered jerry and then winking to joe but he added old top that he thought you looked a trifle heavy only the sudden jolt of the starting train saved jerry from the wallop that slim directed at him and had it landed jerry doubtless would have found it a trifle heavy also there was a general laugh from the others in the car for all three of the boys from brighton had become immensely popular with their companions in arms all of whom by this time had become well accustomed to this sort of gentle fun between the red-headed Jerry and the healthy Evie lad called Slim. 
when they had been riding for another hour, they came upon one of those vast English concentration camps where thousands of young Britons were being trained and equipped for war. As the train slowly, very slowly, passed to the outer edge of this camp, England saluted America, and America saluted England through her fearless young warriors. The young Britons shouted, waved flags, threw their hats into the air, and sang, and the Americans, hanging from car windows and crowded out upon platforms and steps, returned the demonstration with something for good measure. From this point forward the journey constantly was punctuated by scenes and incidents significant of war. Here was an ambulance and Red Cross unit mobilizing for removal to the very heart of smoke and battle and bloodshed. There stood a row of houses whose battered roofs and tottering walls testified to the ruthless aerial night raid of the Germans. It fired the blood of the Americans as they were reminded that these meager evidences of Boche barbarity were nothing compared to the deliberate and vicious ruin wrought in Belgium and northern France. Dover at last, the channel port which marked the beginning of the last hop of their journey to France. The boys hardly could wait until the train came to a stop to get a glimpse of the water across which lay the scene of the bloodiest war in all history, a war in which they were to take an important part. They say this channel is awful choppy, said Slim apprehensively as they left the car. Do you think, Jerry, that we're likely to get seasick again? Don't know, responded Jerry, somewhat dubiously, but there's one consolation about it. It's only a short trip. Never had the three boys from Brighton anticipated such coordinated efficiency in the workings of a war machine. They had expected long delays, frequent disappointments, and protracted periods of training before they should reach the front-line trenches. However, they experienced consistent progress, many pleasant surprises, and few disappointments, and now upon reaching Dover they soon learned that if it was at all possible they would board a transport that same night for the French side of the channel. From the train they were marched to a great cantonment on the edge of the city. The procession there was like a triumphant march, with throngs lined along the streets to cheer them as they passed. For more than a year before, enemy propaganda in the United States had constantly preached that England was weary of the war. This did not look like it. The very atmosphere breathed the spirit of carry-on, a renewed determination to fight to a finish. Amid such a spirit the Brighton boys reached the cantonment, and after a hasty roll-call sat down to what they one and all pronounced a fine feed. They rested for several hours, and then were again ordered to fall in. The march was begun to the docks, where three steamers to be used as transports were loaded with the provisions and ammunition. Together with other American troops which had been awaiting their arrival, they went aboard the transports, but it was not till long after midnight that they were under way. Not a light was permitted on board. Not even the officers were allowed to strike a match or to smoke. No unnecessary noises were permitted, and the whole proceeding spoke of the secrecy of war work and the danger of revealing their plans or their whereabouts to any prowling enemy. With the dawn, scores of men were on deck, including Joe, Jerry, and Slim, and they were well within sight of land. Preparations were already being made for their landing, and a great excitement prevailed on each of the ships. Their long-held hopes were coming to a fruition. France at last. End of chapter 10